Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this format, we bring you timely and relevant conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Join us as we explore new ways of thinking about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. In this episode, our guest is Michael Margolis, Managing Director and Co-Head of Healthcare Investment Banking. Our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on September 30th, 2020. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to click on the subscribe button. Welcome to today's episode entitled The Healthcare Reset. The fundamental themes around healthcare have been debated seemingly forever with affordability, accessibility, profit versus the common good, regulations, and speed of innovation, all hot topics. And now with COVID-19 and the upcoming election and Supreme Court fight, these issues are all front and center. So that's why we're here today to discuss healthcare. In this episode, we'll take a look at Oppenheimer's healthcare investment banking practice, We'll delve into today's regulatory climate. We'll discuss issues around drug pricing, and we'll talk about today's capital markets. And as always, we'll take a look ahead. Happily, we have Michael Margolis to lead the way. Michael is the managing director and co-head of Oppenheimer's healthcare investment banking business. With over 20 years in the industry, Michael brings a wealth of knowledge and a rich diversity of viewpoints, having worked in the pharma industry, on the buy side, and on the sell side. So with all of that, welcome, Michael. Thank you, Jane. Great being here. Well, we have a lot to cover, so let's get started. First, Michael, can you discuss your investment banking business at Oppenheimer to give us a sense of scope? Absolutely, Jane. We're very proud of our investment banking group, healthcare space. 25 people today first came here. We're less than 10. We've grown tremendously over the last couple of years. I've been here for a little over three and a half years. We now have 11 senior publishing research analysts, 26 in total in the group, including juniors. We have eight people in our healthcare equity capital markets group, and we've done over 60 transactions this year alone and over 200 transactions over the last three and a half years. You've definitely been prolific since you've been at Oppenheimer, um, and we've had a bunch of obstacles during that time as well. Can you briefly discuss what you think sets us apart? Look, at the end of the day, I've always looked at some of the boutique firms over the last 15, 20 years especially in the late 90s, early 2000s. I think it's really important as a middle market firm to really focus on a couple of things. One, our relationships and being there for our clients in the good times and the tougher times. Having execution certainty on transactions. And finally, really having a strong research team. Let me dive into our team a bit more, Jane. I want to give a little more color to the audience and why we're different and what really kind of separates Oppenheimer from other firms. I'm very proud of our team and all of our success over the last couple of years here. But our team is unique. I think when you look at really the backgrounds, there's many of the senior offers on our investment banking team. We come from strong scientific backgrounds. We have two PhDs. I'm a pharmacist by training. I have significant industry experience and so do others on our team. I think when you're dealing with emerging growth companies, both small cap and mid cap and even micro cap companies, it's important to have that experience, understand the needs and wants of of our clients. In terms of our geography, especially, you know, during COVID-19, some of us are based out of New York, New Jersey. Others are based out of Boston. 
And Boston really is a key hub for, for biotech and life sciences. And we have bankers based on the West Coast. But not only the United States, we have bankers located outside the U.S. We have a strong presence in London. We have a strong presence in Central Europe. And we have an office in Israel that's been around for over 50 years. You know, one of the things that we do really well at Oppenheimer is helping ex-U.S. companies come to the NASDAQ and really list them on a U.S. exchange and expose them to a much more appropriate comp universe. And our firm's been doing that for a long time here. And I think having that strong scientific background, industry experience, allows us to really help our companies strategically uh, prepare and grow. And let's talk a little bit about covering clients this year and how we've adapted and how you've adapted the business. I know you just wrapped up your Life Science and MedTech Summit. Maybe can you talk about that a little bit and some of the other things, the creative things that you've done this year to stay in touch with our clients? Absolutely. You know, COVID-19 certainly created a lot of challenges for all investment banking groups, for all industries, for life sciences, for healthcare, for technology. You know, since the early March, middle of March, when uh, most of us started working uh, from home or working from basements or not certainly not being in the office and, and regularly traveling, we had to really go into more of a virtual mode. Since that point, we've hosted five healthcare conferences. We've had, uh, at this point, almost 3,700 investor meetings over the last seven months. Um, we've had 103 NDRs and expert calls. And actually, to break it down, 37 healthcare KOLs and expert calls, including Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner four times. We had Dr. Rhonda Pino, the former head of um, MD Anderson. And we even had a political discussion last week at our Life Science Summit, highlighting you know, both sides of the aisle, both the Democratic and the Republican side. You know, it, It's really remarkable how productive we've been in this period of time. If anyone had asked me, in the middle of March, would the healthcare sector be this active? It would be hard to believe. I think we've seen unprecedented activity on the capital market side, and we're now starting to see activity on the M&A side. And as you asked, Jane, we just hosted our Life Science Summit and MedTech event, all virtual. We had four keynote speakers during the three days there, 120 life science and MedTech companies, mostly public, I think, except for, except for one or two. And uh, I'll tell you, the investor feedback was fantastic. Our entire team did a great job providing visibility for our emerging growth clients. And that's really the focus of our platform here. Our job is really help small mid-cap and, and micro-cap companies gain visibility through our broad range of relationships on the investor side. Absolutely. And it's interesting because so many of these things, again, that were obstacles have ended up being, if anything, business facilitators because the access to clients, both corporate and buy side, has almost been better now that we've moved to a virtual model. And I know that you've had a very big year in terms of um, all those kinds of interactions. So let's turn to our reset concept. I'd like to start with the regulatory environment. COVID has made us all much more aware of the role of the FDA. We've all become a little bit more versed in issues around fast-tracking drug approvals and the integrity of that system. All these issues are pertinent to your space. Can you share some of your thoughts around the regulatory front? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also going to touch upon the sentiment overall for the, for the healthcare and really life sciences. Um, as, as long as I can remember, and you know, my background is a bit unique uh, for investment banking. I'm, I'm a pharmacist by training. Started my career in the industry of Eli Lilly and Company in sales and marketing roles. I've worked in Novartis in global business development and licensing and brand management roles. I even worked on the buy side and the sell side. So I've had a lot of different experiences. But the, really over the last 15 years, I can remember this gray cloud, this darker cloud over the industry. And at least the, the general population looking at our industry as price gougers, really taking advantage 
of people uh, who really were in need of these uh, pharmaceuticals. I think, you know, the, the COVID-19, the one thing that did really well for the industry, you think about, if I rewind back to early this year, coming out of the J.P. Morgan conference, February, when COVID was just really starting to gain some momentum, you know, there's a lot of concern about the election and, you know, what the election, at least the, the bipartisan support for drug pricing would do to the market. You know, COVID-19, I think, really brought to light how important our healthcare industry, our drug industry is to the betterment of society. How important it is to national security. I mean, it's going to be our industry, uh, our emerging growth clients, and many of them we talk about on a regular basis, that are going to find a vaccine. They're going to find a therapeutic that gets us out of this mess. And I think people are starting to realize the average person, the pricing problem is still going to become an issue. And we heard that in the most recent presidential debate, it's really bipartisan support. But people are realizing how important this industry is. And I think that as part of America, we need to have a vibrant life science healthcare industry, both on the pharmaceutical side, but also the, um, also the medical device side and even digital health. And we're going to talk about certain areas that I think are going to be outliers and important going forward. Do you think then that we're going to see some changes in terms of process, in terms of approvals and how these issues are handled? Are you seeing a shortening of, of timeframes? Operation Warp Speed, which is the presidential you know, really commitment to finding a vaccine, to finding a therapeutic, has really aggregated a lot of dollars and a lot of scientists' time in finding a vaccine and a therapeutic. We have over five vaccines or therapeutics in phase three development. We have hundreds of other programs in phase two and phase one and preclinical development. It's hard to say what we're going to have in terms of a vaccine. There's a lot of talk, a lot of debate. You know, can you actually develop a vaccine this fast? Only it takes years to develop a vaccine. You know, there's going to be very critical clinical data coming out at the end of this month from several large companies. I think there's a lot of promise here. But I think, you know, personally, I'm going to take more of a wait-and-see approach. A lot of the scientists from the CDC and other governmental industries are, all, are saying that we're probably going to have you know, a commercially available vaccine for the, you know, for the general population, probably somewhere in the middle of the year. But there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I know the FDA wants to approve a vaccine. They want to approve therapeutics. Their first goal here is to make sure something is safe. And that's really the most critical aspect of development of any kind of vaccine or, or, or drug. Is it safe and then certainly uh, efficacious? Right. But in terms of milestones, so you do think that there's going to be some information available within the next month or two on data, clinical results? Yes. Pfizer and Moderna are going to have data by the end, end of October. And that's you know, obviously very quickly approaching. And we did see a little bit of a hiccup with the AstraZeneca program with Oxford. They were put on clinical hold for a period of time. It shows you that drug development is generally not a straight path. There's ups and downs. It takes time. And that's why you do clinical trials to deal with these issues, to find issues around safety and any kind of adverse events. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why the, the march towards therapeutics at the same time is so important. Regenerate had some really interesting data. So it's, it's encouraging. I will tell you, we've never in our history seen such a dedicated approach to finding a vaccine and a therapeutic for coronavirus, for COVID-19. But just we got to remind yourself, it does take time to bring these drugs to the marketplace. The FDA wants to bring a, a drug quickly but they are very, very concerned about safety and efficacy. Right. And and you mentioned some positives. Clearly, collaboration and cross-border collaboration, those have been things that we haven't really seen, which to the point around pricing and all, is, is good to see. I wouldn't mind segging to pricing, certainly another hot 
button topic. And you said COVID has definitely underscored a renewal of the importance of pharma, but Pricing and access always end up getting complicated, and I know you moderated a drug pricing panel last week, which included different political points of view. I was hoping that you could give us some insight into what was discussed. Yeah, so this is just an interesting point, and um, I do want to talk about collaboration really quickly and then go into the pricing aspect, because never have we seen the industry actually work together like we have around COVID-19 or coronavirus. I and mean, this is really kind of going across, not just the United States, but globally, across big industries, across academia, a lot of money being poured into this, which is fantastic. And I think that's all good for the industry. Because the industry, you know, when Gilead actually got Remdesivir approved for emergency use, which was great, they weren't they weren't price gouging the market. You know, the proposed pricing on the vaccine is going to be re- very reasonably priced. So I think the industry is doing a lot of good things right now to help really kind of build its value and create goodwill. Drug pricing is a big issue, and there's a lot of there's bipartisan support. And you heard it in the most recent debate, both on the Democratic and the Republican side. They want to find ways to control pricing. The challenge here is that drug development, the whole process takes a long time. Think about attrition. The numbers are north of a billion dollars. In fact, closer to probably 1.4 more billion dollars to develop a drug with the failure rates. You know, you think about a, a drug that just comes out of the lab, there's less than a 5% chance of success. So it costs a lot of money to bring a drug through its approval process. And unfortunately, there have been bad actors out there. People have actually taken drugs have been on the market for a long time, have raised price significantly, including insulin, right? We've seen a lot of news around insulin prices going through the roof over the last couple of years, and it really shed the bad light on the industry. Uh, there are certain areas, biotech and life sciences and pharmaceuticals, where drug pricing is less of an issue. But I think we're going to have going forward support to control pricing, at least keep access high for key drugs and key therapeutics. And does that role have to come from government? Then, again, I know you're not a policy guy, but this has just been such an important topic. And the disparity between the U.S. and other countries is something that's often talked about. So do you think that there's the possibility to have in the United States a jointly agreed upon move to regulate pricing? There's certainly politicians out there who have talked about regulating pricing. There's been other politicians over the last 20 years talk about having certainly universal health care. We've got the American, we got the ACA or Obamacare out there. We've never had the government truly control pricing. Is that a possibility going forward? It could be. Maybe, you know, it could mm-hmm. be for Medicare and Medicaid, you know, government mm-hmm. government control of prices. But I think that's all to be determined. Who's going to be in office as the next president? How the momentum shifts on this topic. Right. But again, it's in, in the optimistic vein, it's good that we're talking about it. It's good that, they're focused, that there is focus on it because these issues have been building for a very long time. Another place where 2020 has been somewhat surprising is the receptive behavior of capital markets and access to capital. And you mentioned that you've had a very busy and a very successful year of origination. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about the current state of capital markets and deal activity and what you've seen. I know that sort of the range of, of originations and type of originations this year has been pretty impressive. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Certainly the last six or seven months have been really extraordinary when it comes to the capital markets for healthcare. That includes both life sciences, medical technology, and other areas of the healthcare space, especially the digital health side 
of the business. Part of that is, is due to some of the M&A out there. We've seen more recently increased activity in both, I would say, large cap, big cap, and small cap M&A. But a lot of it, I think, is just the interest from a, a very broad group of investors who want exposure to healthcare. And there's certainly there's certain sectors out there, like healthcare, like technology, that really have been, I would say, bright spots for the market. There's other sectors that are just not investable right now. The retail industry, oil and gas industry is not financeable at this point. Therefore, I think people look at healthcare as really an important area. So it appeals to a broad range of investors and well beyond just the, the healthcare specialists uh, that we see in our, in our business. We see you know, a lot of journalist investors, given just the, the strong performance of this sector, want exposure here. The IPOs have done extremely well. We've seen a lot of interest and a lot of support from investors to bring companies public. And again, this is biotech IPOs. These are med- these are certainly all areas of healthcare and technology. Again, as I said before, if you had asked me back in early March or mid-March, even late March, would I expect this kind of performance of our sector? I never would have thought we'd be in this situation. Obviously, it's great to see the access to capital. There's a lot of goodwill right now for the industry. People want exposure here. I think in general, COVID, as I said, has just really allowed the industry to hit a reset button and really shows how important we are going forward. And I think that, that momentum will continue. We're going to see volatility uh, due to the election. Especially if we don't have a clear candidate come November 3rd, we'll see volatility in the, in the capital markets. We'll see volatility in the broader markets. But I think in general, as we look at look towards 2021, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic for our industry. And before we get into 2021, can you talk a little bit about um, the structure of deals and do you expect to see much change in terms of capital pools? You know, we've seen record-setting SPACs formed. Um, private equity is sitting on a tremendous amount of capital. Your space is a regulated space, but do you think some of those different forms of capital are going to have important impacts in your space? It's a really important question. I think when you look at the cost of capital for public companies versus private companies, it's still vastly different. While there's record amounts of private equity and venture capital, um, and sophisticated institutional investors who want to support companies, they much prefer to do it in a public vehicle. And therefore, you've seen you know, SPACs have been around, special purpose uh, acquisition corporations have been around for a long time. I think in healthcare, there are certainly a, a, a much more visible and a, a much more of a newer option for, for companies. But we've seen a significant amount of capital being raised in the SPAC market. We've seen a significant amount of capital being raised through plain vanilla IPOs. We even see money, you know, companies going public through reverse mergers. The SPAC's interesting opportunity. What you're seeing now is seeing some of the most visible and well-respected investors in the healthcare world, in the life sciences world, get involved with SPACs, become sponsors of their own SPACs. And that really has changed the trajectory and the options for, for companies. We've seen some very high-quality companies more recently go public through a SPAC. Oppenheimer just raised money on the front end for a SPAC. And we've been active with SPACs in other, other verticals, especially in the technology space and industrial space. So for us, I think you know, this is definitely a SPAC is not a fad. It's here to stay. And it's certainly becoming more of a viable option for companies. Yep. Well, you said the word trajectory. So, And uh, the title of this series is Let's Talk Future. So let's take a look ahead. We know that... You know, the next couple of months are likely to be quite volatile, obviously, with with the election and all. But as we head into 2021, 
COVID is going to still be around. Interest rates are still going to be quite low. Can you give us a sense of the outlook that you see for your space, where there might be momentum, where investors are going to want to invest? It's a great question. I'm going to touch upon a couple different areas. First, infectious diseases. For a long time, investors, including the, the drug industry, did not want to invest in this area. We all talked about the emerging uh, problem with antibiotic drug resistance. All of a sudden now we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're dealing with COVID-19. And I think we're seeing obviously a lot of companies now who have shifted, maybe they had a cancer vaccine, now they have a COVID vaccine. So certainly seeing a lot of companies, hundreds of companies, wouldn't develop a vaccine or a therapeutic. But I think beyond that, I think it really highlights the need for us to be better prepared going forward. So you're going to see more resources, hopefully some governmental resources, NIH money, and other, other sources in the infectious disease space. The other area that's really interesting is orphan diseases. On the topic of pricing and reimbursement, this remains a focus because it's less problematic in this area as a result of high unmet medical need and relatively low cumulative expenditure at any given block. So what you're talking about is orphan diseases. So by definition, that's a small population, and as a result, pricing is very high. A small population of patients, it could be in the, it could be in pediatrics, it could be in adults, but these are very you know, rare diseases that generally have not gotten the attention of the industry until the last 10 years or so. And it's great because this is an area, frankly, where you're not talking about large uh, groups of patients, but these patients are very, very sick. And you don't have the typical issues around pricing. When you deal with kids, you generally don't get any pushback. Regulators are not going to push back on pricing. Right. And so your point is you think that that's going to continue to be a pretty significant opportunity. Absolutely. The other area I think that's getting, as the baby boomers come of age, neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, even Huntington's disease, right? These are all areas that really have been, been challenges for the drug industry. We're going to see a lot more investment here. We're seeing a lot more companies in the neurology and CNS space, central nervous system space, uh, go public, get access to a significant amount of capital, and frankly, get new drugs in the marketplace. The other area is targeted cancer therapies. This is an area that has been, I would say, very popular over the last couple of years. I don't think that changes. I think you know these are generally small molecule drugs versus immunotherapy. Small molecules are generally easier to develop. You're looking at a target, and there's, there's a couple targets out there like KRAS, like STAT3, that historically have been undruggable. And now you're seeing a lot of progress from, from several very visible companies out there. The shift gears, Jane, and another area, just given everything we've experienced here at COVID-19 and the need for virtual interaction, you know, patients can't go to the doctor, you know, especially uh, in the March through May timeframe, hospitals were closed. Digital health is going to become, uh, I think, an area that's a lot more popular, a lot more visible, and a lot more important here. And you've seen some big M&A in the space, like Teladoc and Lavongo, and you're going to see more and more companies develop here. On the private side, you see VC and private equity-backed companies, and you're seeing companies go public in the space as the need for this technology is critical. And this is really the convergence in healthcare of big data and technology and healthcare coming together. Right. It's interesting. And that's been such a theme in these podcasts as I've been hosting them, sort of the confluence between industry silos and tech and coming up with new solutions, which is very, very pertinent to your space. So it sounds like as you look ahead to next year, you're pretty optimistic, pretty bullish on the outlook for your space. I really am. I think once you get clarity on the election outcome here in Wall Street, the market hates uncertainty. So I think it's very clear and it was said in the debate with President Trump and Biden that we're unlikely to have a clear-cut winner on November 3rd. 
You're going to have a lot of the absentee ballots being read. And you know, the market doesn't see certainty here. It probably will be up and down. But hopefully by the first quarter of next year, we'll be on a smoother track, a smoother market. And people really appreciate the merits of all these companies here and all the excitement around emerging growth companies. For me, I've been doing this for over 20 years. I love the innovation here. We've experienced an amazing innovation curve over the last 10 to 15 years. Just uh, the progress we've made in, in cancer, in, in, in rare diseases, it's remarkable. You know, new technologies like immunotherapy and gene therapy and gene editing, these are all areas that 15 years ago, no, no one ever believed we'd have a drug on the market for. Michael, this has been extremely helpful and extremely interesting. We really appreciate you sharing your insights on your industry. And I suspect that come first quarter of 2021, we'll have the opportunity to do this again with another whole host of pertinent topics to discuss. So thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Jane.